I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Tears of Eden, a nonprofit supporting survivors of spiritual abuse from the evangelical community and home of the Uncertain podcast, is hosting its first in-person retreat con October 20th through 22nd. This retreat con will have the intimacy of a retreat with the intentionality of a conference. In partnership with the I Got Out movement, the retreat con will also feature a special event story jam highlighting survivor stories live and in person. Registration is currently open and spots are limited. Sign up with a link in the show notes. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by the generosity of listeners like you. If you'd like to see the work of Tears of Eden continue, consider giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly supporter. You can do that by visiting tearsofeden.org support. Bridget Eileen Rivera is a sociologist completing her PhD at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Her first book, Heavy Burdens, is a Forward Indies 2022 finalist for religion, providing an honest account of seven ways LGBTQ people experience discrimination in the church. Heavy Burdens helps Christians across the theological spectrum to grapple with hard realities and navigate a better approach to LGBTQ issues. You can follow Bridget's work on social media at Traveling Nun. Here is my interview with Bridget Eileen Rivera. Do you feel comfortable sort of starting with a question of what sort of response you have received from the book? Yeah, so I have, for the most part, received an overwhelmingly positive response from the book. And I attribute that to the audience that my book was really designed for. When I started writing the book, it was very important to me that I wasn't writing this book for an audience that had already decided what they believed before they even opened the front cover. Um, There are plenty of people in the evangelical church who have written LGBTQ people off from the get-go and have no interest in actually engaging in conversation. And I, from the outset, when I started writing, told myself that I was not writing for that group of people. I was writing for the group of, pe- of people who wanted to figure out what was going on and uh, wanting to learn how to be better. I was writing for that group of people who knew that there was something wrong, but did not quite have the words to explain it, did not quite have an understanding of what was wrong, but knew that there was something off and wanted to learn more about it. So from the get-go, I was writing for an audience of people who are interested in just really learning and having a conversation. And because of that, my book has received a very positive response because the people who are reading it are people who, even though there, I, there may be disagreements that they have with my book, Um, Nevertheless, they're the type of person who is able to read the book and still get something out of it. And that was my goal. I I don't expect everyone to read my book, everyone who reads my book to come away saying, all right, you know, 100%, I agree with everything Bridget Eileen Rivera had to say. I don't expect that at all. My hope for the book is that people can read it, feel challenged and come away with their with their understanding expanded. 
with maybe more questions that they're asking now and a broader appreciation for the complexity of this topic. And so, and that's, that's largely what I found to be the case in the reception that the book has, has gotten. And I've, I've really appreciated just kind of hearing across the board from various different demographics. There's people who read my book who come from very conservative sides of Christianity. And there are people who read my book who come from very progressive, very affirming sides of Christianity. And then there's everyone in between. And so what I think brings them all kind of together in terms of like a common quality is that they are interested in understanding more. They're interested in engaging in this conversation and, you know, challenging themselves to think more deeply about the, the topic. And so Overall, I would say it's been it's been a widely positive response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the the title itself is very strategic of ways that people feel harm in the church, and I think that that can be a rallying point of like wherever someone lands in that conversation or what they believe. If they're coming to the book being like, "This isn't okay," mm-hmm. experiences harm, and I want to know like how they experience harm. It makes sense mm-hmm. already going to be drawing in people that are like having a little bit of compassion and it's like starting from a mm-hmm. place of compassion. Yeah. And I think there is such a need to really grapple with the harms that are done because there's not an understanding of how things do real harm to LGBTQ people, even people who are very compassionate and uh, are wanting to be as loving as possible, and that's the genuine, authentic desire that they have, don't realize the impact that some of their words might have, some of their actions mm-hmm. might have on other people. And so that was, that was the hope for my book, that I could kind of bring these things to the surface and help people see and understand the reasons why these things have real and lasting harmful effects on LGBTQ people. There's a, I I start my book by introducing to people a very startling statistic that religious involvement reduces the risk of suicide for every demographic, except for LGBTQ people. For LGBTQ people, religious involvement increases their risk of suicide. That is an absolutely shocking statistic. The fact that going to church makes everyone less likely to die by suicide, except LGBTQ people. For them, they are more likely to die by suicide by going to church. There's something that is very wrong with that. And we should all be asking why? Why (laughs) is this happening? What is the cause for this? And so my book is really, it it starts there and is like, okay, if you want to know why, if you want to have a better understanding of what's really going on, then let's dive in and let's unpack what actually is happening that is causing this really devastating reality for many, many people in the church. And I definitely want to hear just, I want to hear a little, like a little bit of breakdown of like how we got here. But before we jump into that, what are some things that you have seen? And I want people to read the book and you start each 
each chapter with a story of someone just wrestling, just like mm-hmm. wrestling. And then they, they they kind of each kind of have the same experience where they just finally get to that point where they ask a question and they just act like they're just asking someone for help or they're just saying, mm-hmm. hey, what is going on here? And then the response to that is is very visceral and many times very like horrific the way that mm-hmm. the way that they are responded to. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some things as you see some common things that you see in this response to this community when folks are just asking questions? So man, where do I even start? <laughs> common things that often happen when an LGBTQ person just starts asking questions. The question itself is often seen as a threat, is often seen, the question itself is often seen as evidence that this person is already living in sin. Because why would they be asking about same-sex marriage if they weren't already living in sin? If they weren't already, you know, playing with fire, towing the line, trying to see how far they can go. So the question itself is evidence that this person is already in the wrong. And so just asking the question can often feel damning. (laughs) And the response, therefore, to the question is often not to actually engage the question honestly, but to instead hold that person accountable for the imagined sin that is in their life. And so then you have this person who is wrestling with questions, wrestling with how to understand sexuality, and just asking questions causes them to immediately be treated as though they are living in sin. And then you have these people that like swoop in and want to have these interventions Mm -hmm. to hold them accountable. And it's a very common experience that I've heard time and time again, where a queer person is asked to do a Bible study with a mentor and uh, the in the course of the Bible study, rules are introduced where they can't hang out with this person. They can't um, they can't wear these types of clothing. They can't read these types of books. In the course of this mentorship, this accountability that's taking place, there's all of these kind of rules that get introduced to try to, control this person and prevent them from exploring their sexuality in any way, shape, or form. And so the the goal of this mentorship is not to actually help them explore this question and come to an honest conclusion. The goal of this mentorship is to put up as many walls as possible to prevent them from going in any direction that the person in charge thinks is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so the the thing about asking questions about anything related to homosexuality or queerness in general is that many people, many Christians 
believe that the right answer is established from the get-go. There is no room to explore the possibility. Maybe this is the right answer, but maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, I know the right answer. It's this, and you have to agree with me. Otherwise, you're in sin, and we'll kick you out of the church. Mm -hmm. And that is often how these stories end, is this person ends up being ostracized by their community to the point that they end up getting pushed out. And so only for the questions, yeah, so only, only for the questions. It just starts with the questions. Yeah. It starts just with the questions and it's, it's seen time and time again. And one of the things that, one of the things that I, in terms of feedback that I got from my book and my, my book did get some more critical feedback. And one of the more critical reviews of the book said that they felt as if I had cherry picked extreme stories that weren't actually reflective of the normal common experience of queer people in the church. They felt like I had gone fishing for the most extreme stories I could possibly find. And then I put those on display in my book to make things look like they were worse than they actually are. I'm not surprised that that was the feedback. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, there's not much that I can say to that aside from the fact that it's just not true. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, Many of the stories that I shared in the book are watered down versions of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. There were some conversations that I had with the people that I interviewed and I asked them, like, do you want me to include this? And they said no, because they weren't ready to share that or mm -hmm. they didn't feel as if it was something that they could put out on paper for the rest of the world to see. Honestly, it, it frustrated me because I'm like, but people aren't going to know how serious this situation really was. But, you know, I want to respect the people that I was talking to. And so, and I didn't have to go fishing for these stories. Legitimately, almost any queer person I know, and I know many queer people in the Christian church, almost any queer person in the church that I know has some horrific story of trauma mm -hmm. attached to their sexuality, some story of awful things that were done to them by Christians in the name of Jesus. And you really don't have to go fishing for them. In the, in the year that I was writing my book, I had three friends lose their jobs because they were gay for no other reason than because they were gay. Mm -hmm. That it was found out that they, their sexuality was found out because they worked for a Christian organization that's protected. That's not yeah. discrimination in a, in the legal world. And so boom, they lost their jobs just in the span of a year while I was writing the book, three friends. Mm -hmm. uh, the, this stuff is common. It happens all the time. And it's, it's not an exaggeration. In fact, most of the time, people don't really have a full understanding of how bad it really is. Most of the time when queer people share their stories, they're holding something back that they, they themselves can't even bring themselves to share because it's too traumatizing to share it. 
Yeah. And I, I just, it's frustrating because I wish for those. And again, I didn't write my book for those people. (laughs) And the reality is even if it was just one story, Mm -hmm. even if it just happened to one person, when that happens, you know, if it's the youth pastor causing the trauma or the parent or the friend instigating that they're coming, it reveals that they're coming out of a system and a belief system that led to that. So it's not just Mm -hmm. a person that's happening in the context of a spiritual community. It's coming out of an entire system and we should be grieved that it happened we should not be defensive and say, oh, that's not the church. Oh, that's not the real church. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, like anytime. And I feel like I run into that in the survivor community all the time. As like someone is just sharing their story and everyone just wants to make sure that they know, well, not every church is like that. And mm-hmm. not every Christian is like that. It was like, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What was on the table here? Like, yeah. let's just acknowledge that this was really awful. Mm-hmm. And there were some systemic things at play that mm-hmm. led to this really awful for one person. And, you know, even just like with the SBC, like 700, you know, cases, I'm like, you know, people say, well, that's, that's really not that many considering how big the SBC, I was like, well, how big does it have to be? Like, how mm-hmm. many people does it have to be for this to like, actually be considered a problem mm-hmm. um, in this particular situation and this particular conversation the lgbtq conversation it is a colossal problem um, mm-hmm. colossal issue yeah so yeah i'm i'm sad to hear that folks would be like oh you just cherry picked and you're just trying to create drama that's what they'll, that's what they'll say to you too you're just trying to create drama You may already know this, but the Uncertain Podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org slash support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. Talk to me about the problem with the statements like the Bible is clear when it comes to Mm. questions. Yeah. Well, the first and foremost problem is the Bible is not clear. So when you have a situation where everybody around you is insisting the Bible is clear, when like, it's clear that it's not clear. Otherwise, people wouldn't have questions. Otherwise, people wouldn't, if the Bible is clear on this topic, we wouldn't be having entire church schisms over this <laughs> that are ongoing. Look at the facts, people. Look at the facts. Yeah, it's like, it's like a situation of the emperor has no clothes. It's like everybody just wants to like over and over and over and over again, just say that the Bible is clear and just like hope that that somehow makes it true. And it will not ever be true. Uh, The emperor has no clothes and just saying that he does will not make it so. And so that's, I mean, that's the first and foremost problem. And the thing is that I think that we in general, the church, when I say we, I mean the church has an understanding that the Bible is not clear 
about sexuality because there is so much grace that is given to straight people when it comes to matters of sexuality and gender. For example, birth control. Mm -hmm. Are there some fundamentalist groups who uh, take a hard stance on birth control and say that this is not biblical? Absolutely. And that causes tremendous harm to uh, many people. However, the majority consensus of the evangelical church is that birth control and whether you use it or not is a personal decision that you make and that you determine between you and your spouse. And uh, that that's just like almost taken for granted. Like yeah. When I was growing up, no one ever challenged that. It was just kind of a, sure, that's how it is. The vast majority of evangelical Christians use birth control. And there's wide grace given to that question of whether it's biblical or not. And you'll hear major influential theologians like Wayne Grudem, as an example, you know, defending the use of birth control, defending the use of in vitro fertilization mm-hmm. and saying that, you know, this is something that Christians can disagree on, that Christians can have different opinions on. These are not small questions related to sexuality. These are questions related to the conception of a human being. And you have major theologians who agree to disagree on this topic. Same thing with divorce and remarriage. The divorce and remarriage for much of Christian history was seen as sinful. And today, There is broad consensus that people can agree to disagree on this topic. And yes, I want to affirm that there are extreme um, conservative churches and fundamentalist churches who do take a hard stance on that, who do say that divorce is sinful, that you cannot get a divorce. And that does tremendous harm, especially to women who are in abusive situations. And so want to acknowledge that, but also acknowledge that the majority consensus in evangelicalism allows for difference of opinion on that. I'm not going to get kicked out of my church for wondering whether divorce is biblical. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I, I ask a question in a Bible I, study, the response mm-hmm. would be very different than is it a, is gay marriage okay? Very exactly. Very we all know exactly. this. <laughs> all exactly. Exactly. And so And these, again, these are not small questions. When I bring this up to many straight Christians, they're like, oh, but it's not the same as same-sex marriage. And I'm like, actually, no. These are very fundamental questions about human sexuality. These are not small. For most of Christian history, the use of contraception was seen as being as serious of a sin as murder. And uh, that only started changing about a century ago. Up until a century ago, there was wide consensus that this was an extremely serious sin. And now, a century out from the 1920s, we largely are okay with having differences of opinion on that. Same thing with divorce and remarriage. And all of that to say, there is lots of grace for questions related to sexuality. And uh, questions related to homosexuality deserve that same level of grace. They are ultimately cut 
from the same cloth. The, the questions that a gay person is asking don't touch on anything more fundamental than the questions that a straight person asks about their sexuality. And to, to try to say that when a gay person asks whether same-sex marriage is biblical, that that's somehow... So, uh, like that's a, a line that's that's a line too far. Well, what about the questions that a straight person asked that pushed the line in the same exact way, just in a different direction? A lot of people like to call upon the created order. God made them male and female, and he instituted marriage for the purpose of procreation. And so, you know, people are like, same-sex marriage is a challenge to the created order. Well, then how, when, when, when straight people are asking questions about divorce and remarriage and whether or not it's okay to have sex without using, contra- with, with, right. with using contraceptives, like, why is that not a challenge to the created order? The same created order that you're using against queer people. So it's like, again, there's a breakdown. And that's what my book hopes to really show is this breakdown in consistency. Like there is a certain degree of, of grace that's given to heterosexual questions. And all of a sudden it no longer applies. It's like, okay, grace, grace, grace. Oh, but not here. And it's, it's a double standard that is not fair and when you really start interrogating it on a theological level doesn't actually make sense (laughs) like it can't hold up theologically when you really start interrogating the way people practice these things on that note talk to me about the history behind this belief in the gay agenda where that came from and how LGBTQ people became this like mythical enemy in the eyes of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So man, I, I go into this pretty deep in the book. So there's a lot of history that needs to be covered. And I don't, I don't, I barely even scratched the surface with what I cover in the book. But if I could give like a cliff notes version, I would say, you need to go back to really the start of the modern Christian conservative political movement Yeah, in the late 1970s, or I guess really just the, the decade of the 70s. When you see Jerry Falwell's moral majority gaining a lot of political influence, when you see a lot of Christian conservative thinking getting tied up into a political agenda of, you know, we have to take over and get elected for Jesus kind of a thing. And it's really when you start seeing Christianity getting intermingled with politics that gay people really start becoming this mythical enemy of the church because you can go back to the the 70s and the 80s and uh, one of the things that was used as a weapon was this concept of family values Mm -hmm. and when I was growing up 
like family values was like very fundamental to like our identity, very fundamental to our values when it came to like who we vote for and things like that. And the concept of Christian family values was very influential in conversations around feminism, abortion, and especially homosexuality. And in my book, I talk about this idea called a folk devil. And a folk devil is someone that is kind of a scapegoat for the fears, for the political fears of the masses. And it's something that's often, that you often see during election periods and things like that. You'll see politicians stoking up people's fear and hatred and then finding something to attach it on to become the focal point of that fear and hatred. It's a very effective way to whip up a group of people into a frenzy and get them united around a common cause so that they will come out to vote in your favor. Give them, whip up their fear, anxiety, and anger. Give them a common enemy to blame it all on. And now you've got an army of people who will come out and vote for you. And that's what you really see during the late 70s and the in the 80s is uh, you uh, see politicians creating this fear of gay pedophiles coming to yes. rape your children and turn them into homosexuals themselves. There was legislation that was passed protecting gay people from employment discrimination and that became a rallying cry for the conservative Christian political movement, that gay people wanted to go into schools and rape your children and turn them gay. And now there's laws preventing us from firing them because we can't discriminate against them in the employment sector. And so now you're saying the children are at stake. There was a whole campaign called Save the Children. And the Save the Children campaign the, the entire basis of it was we need to stop the homosexuals from raping our children and turning them gay. That was the Save the Children campaign in a nutshell. And But when you call a campaign Save Our Children, man, like, you know, there's like a few things that touch people at like a visceral level than like their children. You are creating this fear, this anxiety. You are telling them that gay people are the cause of this threat. And it it created a very, very powerful political movement. And that on top of some of the other things that were going on at the time, such as the backlash against feminism, Andrew V. Wade, all of these things were kind of piled together and seen as part and parcel of the same problem, the same disease within society that was causing civilization to crumble. Like, when I was when I was growing up, homosexuality, feminism, abortion, these things were all kind of talked about all within the same category of like down that traditional heteronormative family. Mm-hmm. And these things are seen as the enemy of yes. that heteronormative family. Yes, exactly. And so what is the gay agenda? The gay agenda is to destroy the family, rape your children, bring down marriage, 
and kill your babies, which is a reference to abortion. And there's actually a there's actually a quote by Pat Robertson where he actually says that exact thing. Pat Robertson actually went on record saying that the feminist agenda encourages women to kill their children, practice witchcraft, and become lesbians. That's a direct quote. I, I know that one. I know yes. that. Yes. Yes. And yes. you see how these things are all kind of lumped together into one thing, like feminism and abortion, which he, he uses, instead of saying abortion, he says, kill your children, and witchcraft. Uh, and lesbianism, all of these things are all together in the same thing. And it's this kind of like fear of this epic threat that is going to cause civilization to crumble. Like it's the kind of thing that like, you know, hits people at a very like baseline kind of like, oh my gosh, like we have to fight back. Like when you start saying that like Satan is coming to take over the country, like you know, that's like, of course, people are going to come out and be like, no, get back, Satan. And that, that's kind of what was going on at this time. And so what is the gay agenda? That's the gay agenda. It's the it, it is a political fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's a very powerful political fiction that you have this mass of people who represent an existential threat to you and your family. That is the gay agenda. And it doesn't exist. It is a pure political fiction created by political actors in order to get people to come out to vote for the politicians that they wanted them to vote for. Yep. That is, that is what it is. It exists and it's, it's still a very widely spread myth. And Mm -hmm. just like, it is the gateway to pedophilia. It is that, you know, like all of these Mm -hmm. things and even just a couple years ago, a friend of mine was, you know, told me that her niece had been sexually abused in school when she was like five and she's telling me this story. And then like a couple hours later, we ended up getting into this conversation about like gay marriage and, and if that was okay or not okay. And, and she was, she was very, very conservative and I'm trying to engage her in the discussion of just like, you know, maybe there are some other <laughs> maybe there are some other things we need to think about here. And then she just got super, super emotional. And she was like, because of the gay agenda, that is why my niece got sexually abused. And Mm -hmm. so she just immediately made this connection of just like this, this is what happens because of the gay agenda. And for me, I'm sitting there like, there is no connection Mm -hmm. at all all happening. There is nothing no <laughs> like mm-hmm. but she's so emotional about it and believes it so strongly it was just like okay we just need to change the subject and not talk about this anymore mm-hmm. uh, but it was just like I mean and that was just like a couple years ago it's yeah. still very pervasive mm-hmm. uh, in, yeah. to the point that will br- blame sexual abuse that happens in school on this mythical belief yeah and we see it even more so today when it comes to trans issues and a lot of the rhetoric around the gay agenda is now being kind of repackaged as a way to protect kids 
protect children against the, the trans agenda, the gender ideology that is out there. And so if you, if you pay attention, it's all the same rhetoric. It's all the same thinking. Like most of the anti-trans laws that are getting put in place are done in the name of protecting our children without any real consideration for like what actually is a threat to children. Um, yeah. Like <laughs> guns in schools, for example. Youth I pastors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Youth pastors. So, yeah. Like things that we actually know are threats to children are yeah. being completely ignored in order to whip people into a frenzy against this trans ideology that is supposedly a threat to your children and to your family when there are in fact other concerns, mm-hmm. but there's this huge kind of like, like militant, it's very militant. Yeah. Mil- yeah. Very militarized kind of anger that's being like manipulated within people. And uh, it's, you can see that it's purely to, for political purposes to get people to vote in certain ways by and large the the fury over the quote-unquote trans agenda in schools is a fiction you know we don't have people going into schools trying to turn your kid trans and like and can we is it possible to find examples where these types of abuses do happen Yes. Is it possible to find examples of a gay person who is also a rapist or a pedophile? Yes. Is it possible to find examples where a child is being abused and like convinced that they're trans when they're not and like forced to undergo surgery when like they shouldn't? Like, yes, Mm -hmm. it is possible to find examples of all of these things. But let's actually step back and actually consider, is this actually indicative of like actual trends? actual yeah. yeah an actual thing that is happening across the country to tons of people well, no <laughs> and that's kind of where you got to take a step back and realize yes you can find specific examples of all of these horrible things but honestly i could find an example i can find plenty of examples of straight people who are rapists are people going to think that's proof that heterosexuality is inherently pedophilic <laughs> no love it when comedians <laughs> When comedians will like play on that and be like, mm-hmm. actually, heterosexuals uh-huh. are the dangerous ones. And they'll just, they'll just play mm-hmm. that. I love it when people play on that. Okay. So talk to me about, because this does intersect with the political agenda here. How does this conversation intersect with the conversation about like traditional views of men and women? And you specifically mentioned in your book, like, an effeminate presenting man, whether they mm-hmm. okay or not, or a woman who doesn't fall into this or or adopt this like always supporting the man posture. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does this conversation impact? Yeah, how do they intersect with each other? Let's uh, let's start with sexual biology. Let's start there. So I was taught that your sexual biology determines your identity. Like if you are born with a vagina, you're a woman. If you're born with a penis, 
you're a man. This is something that's broadly taken for granted in most conservative evangelical circles. What people don't realize is that that teaching is actually a, a theory about human identity development. It's fascinating. (laughs) It is. It is fascinating, right? We're taught as if this is the obvious way things are, but in fact, it's an identity theory and it's called essentialism. Essentialism teaches that our biology determines the essence, essentialism, essence of our identity of who we are. And this theory is not without critiques. It's, it's not without much robust discussion going on in the outside world around the extent to which this is true. I was kept from knowing about any of that when I was growing up. I was just told this is the taken for granted truth. I was never made aware that this is just a theory. I was never exposed to the conversations going on around human identity developments. Never made aware that this is like a discussion <laughs> that people are trying to figure out. And it to uh, and to that point, identity really is a mystery. What is it that makes us who we are? That is a big big question. And to reduce it down, to reduce human identity down to to penises and vaginas, yeah, is like purpose almost is it's very reductive. Absolutely, and it, that was something that never even occurred to me before I really started thinking this through. And and I I say that not to say that human biology doesn't have a role in identity development. I would say that most people that are involved in discussions around human identity and how people develop their identity, I would say most people do agree. Biology, our bodies play a role in how we develop our identities without a doubt. But I was always taught that biology is the determining role, like the definitive role. It defines who you are. So what are the consequences of that? I'm not going to try, and in my book, I don't try to offer a better definition of human identity or of what gender is because I can't, because it is an ongoing debate. It is an ongoing discussion. There is very little consensus around identity yet. And so, you know, for me to try to like, in the short amount of time that I have in my book, for me to try to present a better idea, I just wouldn't have enough space, I wouldn't be able to do it justice. So instead, in my book, I try to kind of like tease apart the consequences of believing that our sexual biology defines who we are. And so consequence number one, that we see in Christian communities. When you say that a man is defined by whether or not he has a penis, you are also saying that a man 
is driven by his sex. Mm-hmm. When you look historically at an anthropological level at societies that have deter- defined masculinity by a man's sexual biology, they are almost always rife with rape, sexual abuse, child molestation, you name it. Why? Because the mark of masculinity is your sexual biology, your sexual urges. And we actually see this in Christian communities. Yep. I, growing up, was led to believe that men were not in control of their sexual urges. That like, if they saw something and it caused them to lust, it was because of the thing that caused them to lust. And I was taught that I had to control how I dressed, what I did, how I behaved around men in order to protect my brothers in Christ from falling into sin. Why? Because they have these penises that are completely outside of their control. And so, and the the interesting thing about that is that this, this problem, it works itself out in the church today with Tons of cases of sexual abuse just coming out of the woodworks now. And and people are scratching their heads wondering, huh, why is this happening? Why do we have such a problem with sexual abuse in the church when, like, you know, sexual morality is supposed to be so important to us? Well, you've been raising generations of men to believe that their masculinity is defined by their sexual biology. You've been raising a generation of men to conflate those two things. And when you look at, for example, Roman society, they defined men by their penises. And Roman society was jacked up with sexual abuse and molestation and rape and all of this stuff. Any time where human identity has been linked in a definitive way to your sexual organs, it almost always results in in men becoming extremely sexually violent and aggressive and dominant because they're made to believe that this is who they are supposed to be. This is part of their their identity. This is who God made them to be. God made them to be aggressors, to be dominant, to be powerful. And so that's what we see in the Christian church. And so uh, we have a situation where men are defined in this way and it, and, and women on the other side are defined as like the, you know, needing to protect men, needing to protect their masculinity. Women end up getting blamed when they fall victim to a man's sexuality. If a man acts sexually inappropriate, there's a million different excuses for why it wasn't as bad as it actually was. And so you just like, it's just this cascade of consequences that are very rarely ever infected in any kind of like serious way. And that's honestly, that is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to that question. I can like, 
I can keep going to like. Well, I know, and I have like, like a bazillion so other questions. <laughs> I'm just gonna have to do another interview later later on to have like a, I have so many other questions, but I think that this intersects with the with the LGBTQ question because you're defined your masculinity and your femininity are also defined by who you're attracted to. And so, mm-hmm. so there's a, there's a concerted need for these two things to be true. Like you're, you're mm-hmm. a woman here and you're a man here. And that is what makes you a woman. And that's what makes you a man by who you're sexually yes. attracted to. Yep. And you're, you're a subhuman, which then is easy way to say, if this is not you, you are subhuman and you, and you yep. don't actually fit into, into this community because yep you're not fitting into these boxes and there's so many repercussions for that in our communities that we'll just have to be, (laughs) we'll just have to be another podcast episode. But I did want to talk about very, very briefly, because after I read your book, I had, I had heard this already before, but it just had not sunk in. But after I read your book, I, I have shared this fact (laughs) with a lot of people just watching their minds explode and their eyes get really big when they hear this and like I already know the answer to this question but I'm gonna ask it anyway so talk to me about the reality that homosexual was not introduced into the bible until 1946 as a result of Christians embracing Freud's research and the history behind that and why are we not talking about this more Oh boy. Yes. Maybe you can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The big, uh, the big newsflash in that is that the word homosexual was new. (laughs) It did not exist. (laughs) It was added to the Bible. And I, I say that now. So when, whenever I'm having this conversation with people, a big thing that is like a complete full stop for many is you're just trying to twist scripture <laughs> so that you can make it say that you can have gay sex. And so I I like to preface this, especially when I'm having this conversation with more conservative Christians. I, I try to preface this conversation by reminding them that I myself am actually still consider myself on the conservative side of Christianity. I still have a conservative theology that often surprises people because, you know, they hear that I'm gay. They hear that I'm, you know, very outspoken for LGBTQ rights. And then they find out that I'm also celibate and they're like, wait a minute, wait, huh? What's going on there? And well, I'm, I'm very outspoken for, LGBTQ rights. I believe that LGBTQ people have the freedom to determine for themselves what they believe scripture says. But for me, myself, I've landed on a more conservative side of that theology. And so <laughs> I I do still believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. That is still my perspective. That's often very shocking for people. And they're like, wait a minute. Okay. But that's where I find myself. And so I say that because I like to preface this conversation that we have about homosexual being in the Bible with the fact that like, I don't have an ulterior motive here. Like I'm not actually (laughs) trying to twist the Bible so that I can have gay sex because I've already decided that that's not what I'm doing. I just want us to be honest 
about what the Bible actually says and doesn't say. And the fact of the matter is that the word homosexuality did not exist. It was a concept that was developed by a 19th and 20th century sexologists. And Freud came along, kind of packaged it all together and created this whole theory around homosexuality and heterosexuality and the idea that we can actually define human identity by our sexual attractions. He was the one who introduced this idea that there are heterosexual people and there are homosexual people and that we can categorize people based on how they experience attraction. This was brand new. People had never been categorized like this ever before. Freud introduced it. Mm -hmm. And because of Freud's significant social influence, it entered the Christian vocabulary very quickly. And within a couple of decades, turned up in the Bible in the 1946 translation of the RSV. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the Bible says that Men, well, the original translation in KJV was neither the effeminate nor sodomites will enter the kingdom of heaven. Literally, what that translates to in the Greek is neither soft men nor men who bed men will enter the kingdom of heaven. Freud comes around, redefines how we understand who people are. And all of a sudden, in 1946, that translation no longer actually says that. Instead, it just says homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's uh, pretty big. It's pretty big. Like that. Yeah. There's impact. So Words have what meaning. is what is the meaning of this? This means that instead of allowing the Bible to speak for itself, we have taken a ideology created by modern sexology and we have inserted it into scripture. Mm -hmm. We have taken an interpretation of who people are and we have made scripture affirm that interpretation. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is important because what does the word homosexuality refer to it refers to a category of people when you look at the original translation of the bible bible is not categorizing people by their attractions it's referring to specific behaviors that require some robust theological discussion to really parse out what the bible is actually saying and those theological discussions can are really deep and require knowledge of Greek and Latin and Hebrew and an understanding well, ability context to like, in which it was written. Uh-huh. And like these are not minor conversations. Understanding what the Bible is saying in that place is is actually a very difficult conversation to have. It is not easy to determine. And instead, all of that robust dialogue is glossed over with the word homosexual. So that now a pastor from the pulpit can 
point to the Bible and say, the Bible says homosexuals won't enter the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says God hates homosexuals. The Bible doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. We made the Bible say that. <laughs> The Bible doesn't have that word. The Bible doesn't categorize people by who they're attracted to. But we have made it say that. And to this day, there are many translations of scripture that still have the word homosexuality in it, even though homosexuality is a modern identity category. And it does tremendous damage because it creates this fiction that the Bible talks about homosexuality. It doesn't talk about homosexuality. It does talk about behavior. It talks about sexual morality, but it doesn't talk about homosexuality as a category. People didn't understand sexuality that way up until like the 1920s. <laughs> People didn't think of, of sexuality that way. And so to pretend that the Bible talks about a topic that it doesn't actually talk about does tremendous, tremendous damage. And to our earlier discussion, it creates a fiction of the Bible being clear, right. when in fact, it's very complicated. It's, it's not easy to parse out like in First Corinthians 6, 9. What does what do, what is the Bible talking about it when, it when it refers to soft men and men who bed men? That is a very complicated discussion that theologians will write entire books on yeah. to parse it out. We can't just gloss over it with the word homosexual and call it the end of the day. Yeah. And by the way, it's one verse. <laughs> there are just so many other conversations that could be had about things that are much more clear. And there is a, there is, a, there is an agenda here, but I don't think it's the gay agenda. I think there's, mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a, patriarchal agenda happening mm -hmm. in my opinion what you hope to see in the church for the lgbtq community what i hope to see in the church i want to see a future in the church where lgbtq people are free to ask questions are free to explore this topic and what the bible actually says on this topic without being a of losing their church, of losing their community, of losing their salvation. Because they're not, there is no threat of losing their salvation. You can ask these questions and God still loves you. God's going to walk with you through those questions. God's not going to abandon you um, just because you're trying to figure out what the Bible says. And I want to see God's love for LGBTQ people reflected in the church communities and Christian families. Like if, if God can walk with us through the murkiness of these questions and uh, stay by our side, regardless of where we find ourselves in that journey, then Christians can too. The church can too. And so I want to see a church where LGBTQ people have the freedom that God gives them to ask questions and follow the Holy Spirit in searching for answers, to be able to engage scripture honestly and authentically, and come to honest and authentic conclusions what what, about what the Bible is actually saying without being afraid that if they somehow, quote unquote, arrive at the wrong answer, 
that that's going to have horrible consequences for them. I I wish that there was more freedom to come to different places on these questions for everyone to just kind of chill out and be okay with that and not put up these such hard lines in the sand around this topic. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.